but that it would be your word. For that's what doesn't return void. That's what accomplishes its purpose. That is what you are jealous for. I'm going to reflect on that for a moment and seek the light and the power of your Holy Spirit through your word and in our lives tonight as we open it together in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to be doing the book of First Peter. Um, and uh, First Pete, um, who was Peter? Yeah, he was, he was, if you will, the chief of the apostles. Okay, it's the chief of the apostles that of the of the original twelve that walked with Christ, um, and uh, um, his his name originally was Simon or Shimon would have been more accurate Aramaic Simon as we get it in English, um, and along the way, um, Jesus renames him Kepha, which is rock. And, uh, and it comes to us in Greek is, uh, if you ever read like Cephas said, Cephas is Kepha transliterated into Greek and then translated, it's Petras, which becomes transliterated into English, Peter. So I'm write all that down for you. Um, Kepha's Aramaic. What is Aramaic? What language is that? Hebrew. Hebrew yeah, it's the language that the, the Israelites spoke in the first century. It's the language that they came out of exile speaking. It's, uh, it's a similar language to Hebrew, but it's not Hebrew. You know, they were speaking Hebrew, they went off to Babylon, and they're, gonna, they're going to end up... Any, you, get, you have someone from a foreign nation come over here for 70 years, what language are they going to speak? Yeah, they're going to speak English. They're not going to speak their, their mother. They may still preserve their mother tongue, but their everyday language. And so that's the language of the first century was Aramaic. Um, was that the Babylonian language? That was the day-to-day language uh, at that time, yeah. Um, and so his name would have been Kepha. In fact, Yeshua is, you ever heard Yeshua? Okay, that's the Aramaic shortened version of Yehoshua. Hebrews Yehoshua, shorten it, turn it to Aramaic, it's Yeshua. Okay, that's where we get Yeshua. So, Kepha, and so if you, if you take, if, what, the difference between, explain this, the difference between translating and transliterating, it's an important difference. To transliterate simply means I take the sounds of a word in one language and use the sounds in the alphabet of another language to say the same word in that language, okay? So, taking this from Aramaic to Greek, it's Cephas. And the reason why it's Cephas is male names ended in an S in Greek. That's how you get from Yeshua to Jesus, okay? This is kind of how we get to Jesus, all right? So... You add that S on the end because it's a male name, and you get Cephas. So you get Kepha to Cephas in the Greek. But um, so this is what Jesus renamed Peter, Simon, you know, Simon Peter, Shimon, renamed him Kepha. Now that's transliterating. To translate means to give the meaning of the word. Okay? So the meaning of the word is rock, right? 
But to take it into Greek, Petras, okay? And then when we take that, you know, through, through the route it went coming into English, it comes to us as Peter. So you'll see, the reason I'm bringing this up is you'll see Bibles that'll actually, I've seen translations of the scripture that'll, that'll use any one of these. Um, in certain letters, you'll see it certain, written certain ways. Um, and all of this is the same word. This is all reference to rock. So if we wanted to actually truly translate it, we would just call them the rock. <laughs> but somebody is using that right now, so we don't want to confuse him with, uh, with a wrestler. Anyway, um, uh, that, that's free. It had very little to do with our lesson. But um, that, that actually is a, um, something you'll see in the Bible. You'll see. Okay. So, Peter's the one who wrote this letter, and um, what uh, the the gist of this letter, what it's about is he's writing to people who are facing persecution. They're facing trials and struggles for their faith. That's the, 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 the real subject matter he's dealing with. He's got an introduction, and then after the introduction, he, I mean, he kind of gives us this this uh, poem that really kind of lays all this out. And then after that, he breaks it down in section by section. And, and that's the, the essence of what he's saying is how to live and live faithfully in the middle of the persecution that you're, that you're facing, in the middle of the trials that you're facing. Now, um, most of us here are not actually going through uh, persecution for our faith. You know, we may have run into some people who treat us a certain way or differently, and maybe even, you know, I know people at uh, uh, university are, you know, had to deal with a little bit of trials and struggles, but I'm not talking about hard-out persecution. That said, there is more persecution against Christians now than there ever has been in the history of the, since the first century. Uh, in fact, uh, um, uh, it, was, it was the, interestingly enough, the main issue that uh, our president brought up at the UN, talking about how much, oh, thank you, how much persecution, I'm going to back this up, I'm push that out a little bit, back this up a little bit. Um, how much persecution is going on in, in the world right now against believers? Um, and how are we to react? How are we to respond? How are we to face that? How do we do that? There's an amazing book, um, Michelle, <coughs> her copy, it's called um, um, The Insanity of God. I mean, some of you have heard me talk about it before. Can't recommend it enough. Um, there are those in this country right now uh, who would love to um, remove any vestige of uh, Christianity um, you know, I just heard one of the presidential candidates that are running right now, I heard one of them actually say, you know, uh, would take, um, in a second, take all tax exemptions away from churches if they don't follow certain public policies. That would be violating scriptural principles. Um, I mean, these, this is unlocked. This, these are real forces in our time. And so it's, it's incumbent upon us to know this, to understand this. Now, how, what should our attitude be? How should we respond to this? Um, obviously, we should be praying. Two, we shouldn't be walking in fear. 
Um, three, you know, we're, we're called to be good citizens. We have an opportunity to be good citizens and participate in the, in the process. But our hope, I hope we'll see, is ultimately in Christ in the middle of all this. So this is a very real thing for us in our time as we're studying through this. Now the other thing we're going to see is Peter just doesn't sit down and just come up with a letter. He's just right off the, hey, God, be encouraged and all this. He is, and, and, and something that happens is all throughout the apostolic writings, these guys are thinking God's word. They're thinking it. They're, they're, it's processing. And it just, it oozes out. This is about every other verse. There is some allusion or some reference to scriptures in other places. And it's just coming out. And so I'm going to point out some of it, some of it that, you know, some of that I've made connections with myself. I brought my notes from Bible Project because he does a great job at, at pointing out a lot of them, where they are throughout there. And they're not, you know, a lot of times you'll see in your Bible where it's an obvious quote and it'll give you a little letter and it says that. But there's tons more that's going on in here besides that. And, um, and not just hard quotes, but actual allusions and references to it. Um, so... Uh, really, as you're, as you're reading it, look for those things. Try to make those connections because they're not accidental. They're not there by accident. Um, uh, it's God's word and they're trying to connect us. The authors are trying to connect us to it and they're using his word in what they're saying. They're repurposing um, uh, uh, repositioning might be a better way of saying his word so that it has effect. And so I'll tell you the first way he does this. This is the first way he does this, and we'll see it right in the very first beginning of the, of the letter. The very first way he does this is he draws a parallel between Gentile believers, because this is primarily written to Gentile believers. He's writing it to, there are, you know, um, it does include uh, uh, Jewish believers in this, but he's primarily writing to Gentile believers. And what he does is he makes connections immediately from the um, Hebrew scriptures to saying, hey, you as Gentile believers, you are children of Abraham. You're children of Abraham. You have been grafted into this covenant. And you need to see yourselves. Huge. You need to see and understand your identity from that perspective, because if you're going to get through this, you have to have that perspective. You have to have that perspective. And he starts right off with that as he's, as he's coming into, he alludes to it throughout and connects to it throughout. So with all of that being said, let's, let's jump into the text. Can we jump into the text mm-hmm. and see what comes out? All right. Can I make a comment before you go into it? Uh, when you were talking about the uh, persecution, of uh, Christians, I just wanted to make a comment on that. That um, I think it was back in 08, the largest item on the real estate market in Europe was churches, and the majority of those churches were bought by Islamics or Muslims used, <coughs> and now the majority of them are mosques. Yeah, so I want to comment to that, and, and that is just there certainly is um, persecution of believers in. in uh, um, in from other religions, but I would submit there's also persecution from those who are irreligious as well. It doesn't take one uh, um, form. 
It doesn't take just one form. It happens across the board. And, and, and Peter delves into why, and uh, I think we'll see some of it as we jump into the text. Yeah. All right, so this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, that term right there, elect exiles, right off the top. He's, he's, we, he, we, he's speaking to the Gentiles, but by referring to them the, as elect, that term elect is a reference to the nation of Israel. <clears throat> Exiles is a reference to where most Israelites have been. Most Israelites did not return. The, 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 the initial ten tribes had never returned to Israel, except for a very scant remnant. Um, and most who were from the north, southern kingdom of Judah who were carried off in exile remained in exile. So he's right away making this connection to the believers to, to, um, with um, uh, the children of Abraham. Elect exiles of the dis- dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's really focusing on that region there in uh, Asia Minor, Minor and surrounding According to the foreknowledge, now I love this. You ready? Catch this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for sprinkling with His blood. Did you catch that? God the Father. See, this is one of the things that early authors, the early authors don't come out and just say, I'm going to say this to you because I'm going to be giving you a Trinitarian. They don't do that. They use the narrative to speak to you through the narrative. So by putting it in this light, they're, they're revealing to you how they understand the Godhead. Okay? This is, Tim, Tim Mackey did an amazing job with that, showing what he showed in, in Genesis and all. This is really cool. But anyway, that's not this. So let's keep going. According to uh, the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification. So what's the foreknowledge of God the Father? Um, it's referring to God's omniscience. According to God, see, there's other places. Paul tells us another way. Paul tells us this way in Ephesians. He says, um, uh, let me actually turn there and quote it for you. It's Ephesians chapter 1. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ready? Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. Okay, remember I told you this is about our identity. He's starting right off with helping us understand our identity. I don't know if you realize that before God created anything, he conceived you in his mind and with that foreknowledge, created creation so that you would be existing in exactly the time and the place and the space in which you were meant to exist. That's the specificity with which we are created. He conceived of us before the foundation of the world. We, 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 We sell ourselves so far short I don't know if we fully recognize and understand the eternal identity that has been granted to us. This thing we call Christianity is not about getting a little Jesus so I got a little fire insurance so I can just kind of skate through, make it through by the... 
the uh, um, um, skin. Yeah, I'm sticking my finger, edge of my fingernails. You know, hanging on by my fingertips. We are literally called to reign and rule eternally with Christ. Heavenly inheritance. So he's going to touch on that in just a second. I'm sorry. No, it's no sorries. So in the sanctification of the spirits. So the fact that the Holy Spirit has dwells in us is showing that sanctification. That means we are set apart for a holy purpose, special, separate unto God. We have a holy purpose set apart. You know, the sad thing is, is we can have all this and not realize it, not walk in it, not live in it, even reject it. And when we understand what we're rejecting, you can begin to understand how great the wrath of God is. Because if there's one thing we learn from the scriptures, God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. He jealously yearns for his creation. Jealously yearns for his creation. Hebrews tells us he is a jealous God, which is, by the way, a quote from the Hebrew scriptures. He, and, and why is it a good thing? Can I tell you why it's a good thing? Because he's jealous to keep his word. There's not one word in here that he gives, that he has given us that he is, he is jealous to keep it. Remember him talking to Moses? Are my arms short that I can't keep my word? Remember the T-Rex God? The alligator God? Really, Moses? Yeah, I mean, he comes right out and says that to Moses. He says, you really believe I'm not going to keep, I can't keep my word? Because Moses is like, Lord, where are, you, where are you possibly going to get meat to feed all these people and all these animals in the middle of the desert? Lord, he's like, Lord, I don't, I'm not so sure you can do that. And like, really not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what he said. So, but how often do we feel that way? How often do we look at our circumstances and look what we face and we feel? Because again, what's the subject matter that's going on here? These guys are facing persecution. When we're going through trials, how easy is it to think the hand of God is short? So sanctification of the Spirit, showing us, that's showing us our identity, showing us the uniqueness, the specialness of the, of the creation. So the cool thing is, is, is you're special and so is everybody else. Catch that. I hope you think on that for a while. You'll catch it. Yeah. Number three, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So that special purpose for which we were set apart is to demonstrate Christ. This is the setup, guys. He's totally setting up in this letter. We are to demonstrate Christ. What did Christ do? Demonstrate the Father. Christ said, I didn't do anything. I didn't see the Father doing. I didn't say anything. I didn't hear the Father speaking. And so Peter's starting right off with this, that, that, that God foreknew ahead of time, thought about you to have you set apart, special, unique in this time, in this place right now so that you can reflect Jesus. That's what he just said. And for the sprinkling of his blood, it is the blood of Christ that restores all of that that had been lost. It's the blood of Christ that restores all of that that had been lost. All right, let me keep going because I want to get through more than two verses. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Number three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, a, um, uh, a common greeting, uh, a, a way of beginning, a common uh, 
uh, um, phrase that you'll see. Paul uses it seven, several times. Um, this, this means of introducing us, of blessing. Notice what it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, now, I'm going to bring this up because we get blessing backwards. If you, the scriptural sense of blessing is that we bless God. Blessed be the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What most of us do is we seek God for his blessing us. And we have it backwards. Most of the time in the scriptures, bless the name of the Lord. Bless God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's mostly blessing him. In fact, when it talks about blessing for meal, it doesn't say ask God to bless the meal. It says bless God for it. How many times we say we're going to bless the meal as though God's going to bless the food? No, we are blessed to receive it. So we are blessing God that we have it. Blessed be his name. Blessed be his name. See, blessed is, when we say blessed, it is that sense, if we, if we get the full sense of it, it's that sense of understanding that he is other, he is unique, he is provider, he is God. And so by blessing him, we're recognizing that. We're recognizing that uniqueness. We're blessing him and that all that we have is because of that. And now let's look and see how he uses it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I mean, this is going to be a long run on sentence. Lots of stuff in this. But notice, if there is, this is interesting. I don't want to take a lot of time on it. I just want a little tiny sidebar. One of the ways of demonstrating um, the existence of God is something called, is understanding was called the first cause. He is the first cause that's uncaused. How, why don't I say this? Name one thing that you know of that wasn't caused in some way. Everything has a cause. No, if this, this is filled with water, how to get to fill with water? Well, I stuck it under and turned the faucet. Well, how'd the faucet work? Well, we have plumbing up. You know, everything has a cause. Therefore, everything has a purpose. The purpose comes from what caused it. Is this a little bit, everybody with me? Everybody catching this? Okay. A little, little I don't want to be too far out here. So, so therefore everything has a purpose outside of itself. Do you catch that? If, if I, I printed this piece of paper out, right? So I'm the one that caused this piece of paper with this writing coming to existence. So I'm the one then who decides why that I did that, right? Does this paper, if I made all of a sudden, if I had like special abilities and made this paper come alive and all of a sudden this paper says, oh, that's great, man, that's awesome. Does the paper get to decide why it exists? No. Well, why not? It has a will. I gave it one. Why doesn't it get its own choice to decide why it exists? Because it didn't create itself. Its purpose doesn't come from itself. Now, I love Ravi Zacharias. He, he was in, uh, I think he was in, in seminary. They, they, um, they, they, he actually had a test that asked this question. I think it was um, describe God or something like that. And he said, fortunately, it only had like three or four lines of space to write. He said, because he felt like the more he would write, the higher chances of heresy would be coming out. You know? <laughs> we said, God is the only being whose purpose for his existence is contained within himself. All of the beings, the purpose for their existence is outside of themselves. 
Why? Because he is the uncaused causer. You see, he has caused us to be born again. He has given us the opportunity to be born anew. We actually, I mean, come on, how many, how many have ever had the feeling that they want to do over? In golf, we call it a mulligan. <laughs> Anybody play golf? Anybody love when you, you know, I've played tournaments, okay? And you can actually buy mulligans, okay? You start the game with, you know, because it's fun. They're raising funds, right? Choose some fundraiser they're doing it for. It's like, hey, I'll, I'll take 10. <laughs> and it's usually not enough. <laughs> and it usually costs you a lot of money to get 10 of them too, right? They're, you know, they're pricey. That he has caused us to get a new chance of creation itself. To be born again. Wow. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, if there's, what is the one thing that happens when you're faced with trials, when you're faced with, with difficulties, when you're faced with struggles? What's the one thing that goes away? Hope. 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 Remember the phrase, keep hope alive? Hope. Right? It's the one thing that goes away. He's given us a hope that's alive. Y'all heard me say this before. What's the difference between worldly hope and biblical hope? One is a wish and the other is a certainty. Right. Worldly hope, you know, if you say like, if you say like, I hope we're going to, you know, hey, I think we're going to do this. I hope we get to do it. What does that mean? That means there is a chance it's not going to happen. We're looking forward to, we think it could, there's a good probability. I would get excited to do it, but it may not happen. So you ever said, don't get your hopes up? That is not biblical hope. That's not what it says when it says he's given us a living hope. To have a living hope means it is something that all we are doing is just waiting until it comes to pass. It's a for sure because God is a, what kind of God? Jealous God who keeps his word. You see how this all starts to fit together? It's a living hope. We, we can stand on the fact that it's going to happen. So he's given us a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That, if in... in um, the thing, can I, can I tell you? I'm going to stand up for this. It's getting. Anybody else warm? Yeah. All right. Um. Yeah, I'm like sweating in here. So, um, if there's one thing, guys, as I've been. Um, that speaks to the veracity, the, the truth, the fact of who Jesus is um, and the, uh, um, and that we can rely on that. It's the resurrection. It's the resurrection. Um, how many have ever actually looked at, studied at, a, at any level the, the, um, the different proofs for the resurrection? Anybody? The evidence is the resurrection? Anybody? I've read some. You've read some? 
you have a little bit? Who else? My bad. A little bit. All right, I'm going to recommend something to you. This one thing alone, I've used this uh, in a car talking to, it's, it's easy. In fact, my daughter just, she's in a little small group in Georgia. She texted me the other day, she said, what was that book, Dad? We were talking about this. Um, one book I'm going to recommend for this is, I think it's called The Case for the Resurrection. It's by Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona. Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona. Get the book. It's very easy to read. They're both scholars, but they wrote this at a, at a very accessible level. Um, and they, they do this. They talk about... Um, The four facts uh, approach to the resurrection. Four facts approach to the resurrection. There are four historical facts, and this is this is Habermas. You can look, if you're a if you're a listening kind of person, look him up on YouTube. He's got plenty of talks about this. I seen I have seen a debate between him and Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew used to be one of the most famous atheists. In the world, he was like the, the he was like the you know um, main one who made arguments for atheism um, a few decades back. There's others who've who've come after him, but a few decades back, he has since well he's passed away now. But he he um, as he got towards the end of his life, he uh, uh, said you know he can't be an atheist anymore. He was wrong in his positions. Yeah, but I saw, I saw Gary Habermas debate him, and you're watching Gary Habermas. He's He's a scholar, but he just talks like a regular guy. I mean, he just says, hey, how's it going? He just talks to him. You, see, you hear him just whip out these facts and nail them and lay them out there. Very engaging to watch. So, so I'm say this. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing about these four facts about the resurrection. You do not have to have a high view of the scripture in order to, to, um, to accept these facts. Go ahead. Habermas, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S. Habermas. Habermas. And Lacona, I think is... Yeah, you can't read that. <laughs> H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S. Yeah, Habermas. Habermas and Lacona, L-I-C-O-N-A. He, he, by the way, is a professor at HBU, Lacona is. Um, so... Uh, um, you don't have to have a high view. Now listen, what he says is he says he has a high view of the Bible. He believes it's the you know inspired word of God. But you can talk to someone who says, Well, I don't, you know, I'm not so sure the Bible's the word of God. Fine. I'm going to give you four facts that have been that are accepted by all scholars who this is their world of scholarship. Now, that includes atheistic scholars, that includes uh, skeptical scholars, liberal scholars, as well as evangelical scholars, conservative scholars, all scholars, except these. Uh, when I say scholar, I'm talking about somebody that this is their type of study. In other words, you can be a scholar in some science field over here and not, not hold this, but that's because you don't, this isn't your field of study. So if this is your field of study, um, there are four facts. Now, at first, they're very simple, and you go, okay, they're really simple. Yeah, but when you weave them together, they literally take out every objection to the resurrection. Okay, so I'm going to give them to you. Just going to lay it out here real fast. Um, and I, I highly recommend memorizing them because you can lay them out in a conversation with somebody 
And uh, just like this, in an easy conversation, you know, because somebody said, well, you know, I'm not sure about this whole God. Easter's a great time talking about this. You know, you know, I'm not sure about this whole thing of resurrection. Well, you know, there's four facts that every scholar agrees is true about the resurrection. There's not one scholar. And the problem is, is that once you take those four facts together, you have, you have no reasonable explanation except for the resurrection. Unless, you know, you're a genius and you can come up with something that no one's been able to come up with in 2,000 years. Oh, really? Let me hear them. What are they? Okay, number one. What's number one? Jesus actually died. He actually died on the cross. There's not a scholar that, that, that this is their field of study that will tell you that Jesus didn't die. You know, you know why that's important? Just took the, there was a whole objection called the swoon theory, and that just got thrown out. <laughs> he didn't swoon for three days and come back. You know, you know uh, anybody watch Princess Bride? He wasn't mostly dead. <laughs> he's not actually dead he's just mostly dead is that connected when they say he gave up the ghost mm-hmm. yep. well gave up the ghost is, a, as in, is an acronym that just means died yeah the spirit left him but um, so this is number one I'm, and I'm not going to get into all the evidences behind all of them I'm just going to hit them get the books that's really good number two um, uh, the disciples actually believed they saw him re- uh, resurrected. <coughs> the disciples actually believed they saw him resurrected. This is hugely important. Again, there's not one scholar who would tell you one that this is, and this is their area of study who would tell you that the disciples didn't actually believe they saw something. No, they, they actually believed they saw something. Well, that gets rid of, that gets rid of a whole host of them. They, they couldn't have made it up if they believed it. It's not a made-up story. They didn't make it up. It wasn't some people, it wasn't something that developed three, three, or, four hundred, you know, three or four decades later where they were coming up with this legend. Gets rid of legend. Gets rid of all those objections. They actually believe this song. Number, and the other thing that's important about this the fact, and you'll read it in the book, is that they believe they saw him go, uh, against the fact that they, were expe- they weren't expecting to see him. What's even more important, okay, so it's not a hallucination. It's not like wishful thinking. It's not that they wanted to see him. They weren't expecting to see him, and they believe they see him. That's, that's even, more, uh, even a stronger position. So the disciples saw something. And it wasn't a hallucination. They actually saw. Um, couldn't have been a hallucination. Couldn't have been. That takes, gets rid of legend. Number three. Paul the enemy. Claimed to see him. Okay. So now you have one who is going. Who, who has a sudden change from going. From putting people in jail and killing people. Opposed. To now all of a sudden being the, 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 one of the greatest propagators in all the world for him. What changed? He claimed to see a resurrected Christ. Okay? You can't explain that away. Again, this is not hallucination. It's not um, uh, wishful thinking. All of those things are taken off the table. All of those things go away. Um, and then number four. James the Skeptic. Saw him. Claimed to see him. There's a fourth, there's a fourth one. So, um, 
take those four together, these are all four facts that, that all historians uh, or scholars that this is their field of study will tell you, you near 100% agreement on that. What, what, um, what could it have been other than resurrection? What objection? All the traditional objections go away. You know what most people say who want to remain skeptical? Well, I mean, we know all that's true. We just don't know what really happened. Yes. I mean, seriously, I've seen. I've actually seen it. I've seen it. I just don't know what happened. Why do you say that? Because you don't want to deal with the facts. There's actually a fifth fact that goes along with it. It's called the four plus one approach. There's a fifth fact. It's the four plus one. The fifth fact has about 75% agreement. 75% agree with the fifth fact, and that is the tomb was empty. And it was not only was it empty, it was attested to by his enemies that it was empty. Okay? In fact, the enemies made up a story that the body was stolen, which we know couldn't be true because the disciples actually believed they saw it. You see how you get rid of all these? You start getting rid of any objection. They stole the body, all these things. That goes away because of this. You can't defeat. So, here's my point. Why am I taking the time, you know, we're, we're only four, four verses in on this. You know, we got tons of text we could be covering, lots of stuff to look at. Why am I taking the time to do this? Foundation. Foundation? Absolutely. Why is this such an important foundation? Because it all collapses without it. Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't take it even one further. Because we collapse without it. Because we collapse without it. I don't know how many times people have gone through, I've seen people go through, challenged in their faith at one level or another, and say, I'm, I'm done, I'm walking away, all that. What are you doing with this? Remember early on in my walk, um, someone who you know I looked up to as a as a very strong spiritual individual, I mean, fairly early on in my walk, just was going through lots of struggles. And I don't know, I'm just questioning my faith as a whole. I'm just really questioning all this other stuff. And I was probably still in my 20s at the time. And I was talking to this person on the phone. I was like, you know Jesus rose from the dead. You know he did. What do you do with that? See, this isn't just, it's not, he didn't raise spiritually from the dead. The man physically came out of the tomb from the dead in a resurrected, glorified body and ascended into the heavens physically and is seated at the right hand of the Father. The reason why that's so important to know is it says exactly the same way he left, he's coming back. If you actually believe this, then you actually believe he's coming back riding on the clouds. I've been thinking about this the last three days or so. It's just been blowing my mind at how much we don't live this way. And I'm afraid I may not get time to cover it tonight. But Peter hits that four times. One, two, three, four times within the first uh, 30 verses. To say we've got to live understanding that he's coming back in glory. This is the start of it all right here. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead changes everything. 
everything, everything we, we concern about, everything we're worried about, everything we face, the one thing we have to come at, he rose. That is a fact. I don't know what I'm facing. I may not understand it. You know, I got my own things right now. I'm, I'm going through and wrestling with the Lord. Like, I don't understand this. I'm not sure. But none of it shakes me other than the fact that, Lord, I'm pressing into you. I know you have the answer. Because I know this is a fact. I know this is a fact. It's the one question I have. When we come to faith, what is it we're believing? Are we believing in God who's who just dealt with some of our problems? May just feel good for a little while? Dealing, a, a person who was physically real came back from the dead. Robert? Can you elaborate on point four? James the skeptic? James, his brother, was a skeptic. Is that the same James the just? Yes, James the just. Jacob. Jacob the, uh, the righteous. Tzadik. Um, Jacob had said it. I didn't realize he was a skeptic. Yeah, he, if you look in the scriptures, none of his brothers, they didn't believe in him beforehand. They was like, Jesus, you're, you're, going, you're a little crazy, man. You know, you're a little loony here. You need to come away from the people. Yeah, he was a skeptic. And he's, uh, Paul talks about 1 Corinthians 15. Saul, uh, he was one of the first ones to see Jesus early ones to see Jesus raised from the dead. And so here he goes from being a skeptic to being the leader of the church in Jerusalem, arguably the, the elder of the church worldwide. Which I would submit to you has something to do with the fact that he's the son of David, but that's a different conversation. Same James who wrote the... Yeah, same Jacob. His name is actually Jacob, but we talked about that before. So... This is huge. Peter starts right off with this. The living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And what does that mean for us? So I'm going to, I'm going to read, go back. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy. So it all is coming from this place of mercy to God. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance. So, an inheritance, who inherits? Sons. Family members. Family members inherit, right? You pass it on to your children. Right. So, he has given us a position. Okay, the, re- the reason why this is so important that Peter's saying this to the, to the crowd he's saying this to is I can take you in the scriptures and show you the moment in time when God divorces himself from the world. You're not my people anymore. He actually does that with the northern kingdom as well. Hosea, those who are called my people shall be not my people. Peter actually references that text in this letter. He's actually references Hosea in this letter. He who is not my people shall be called my people. Actually divorces himself from the world, from the nations, done with you, over, act separated. And he says, now we have an inheritance because Jesus rose from the dead. Inheritance. We are inheriting. Now what kind of inheritance are we inheriting? One that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, this should be Matthew. It should be Sermon on the Mount, right? Hey! It should be Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus says, lay not for yourselves, lay, lay up not for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where rust and moth can destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth can destroy. That's what he's saying. There is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Paul put it this way. He says we can build our whole lives and we can be building with wood, hay, or stubble, or we can be building with gold, silver, and precious stones. He says every one of us, every one of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And our God, who is a consuming fire, the mere, his mere presence is going to, burn, uh, going to t- uh, test everything that we've done in our lives. And anybody who is built with gold, silver, and precious stones will have a purified reward that has been laid up. It will be imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Anybody who lived their whole life building for this world will lose everything, even if they're saved. Even if they're saved. Do you see it? I was listening to a podcast today, and now it finally makes sense. Hmm. He was talking about how somebody died, and he said, you never see a hearse. Do you ever see a hearse with the U-Haul trailer behind it? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how does that have to do anything with somebody dying? And you said, I'm like, you can't take it with you. Hey, there it goes. <laughs> you can't take it with you. That's right. Now, how is God guarding all this? Catch this next line. I've got to read the whole thing together so you get the impact of it. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. We have a new life to a living hope, something that is for sure going to happen through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, an event that was planned from the beginning that is once for all time Him physically raising up from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, you, who by God's power, whose power? God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When is salvation revealed? At the coming of Christ. I mean, he thought I am saved. (laughs) He just said salvation comes later. We don't have time to, to break in tonight, but I would, I'm going to submit this to you and lay this out for you. The scripture tells us, I am saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. Which one is it? Yes. The answer is? Yes. Yeah, the answer is yes. I am saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. There is a, there is a, a meaning to all of those. What Peter is saying, and he brings this point out several times here, he's saying, listen, the quintessential event uh, 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 the first quintessential event of history was the resurrection of Christ. The second one is his coming in glory. And at that point, when he comes in glory, that is the day of salvation. It's the day of salvation because it's all done. It's the day of salvation because everything happens. It, 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 um, uh, um, it culminates. It's a culmination of everything. And so we are being guarded by God's power through what? Faith. Here it is. It comes down to this. We're either going to believe that God's jealous to perform His word or not. We're going to trust Him or not. That's what it comes down to. And Peter's talking, once again, he's talking to these people who are facing, they're facing life and death. They're facing it every day. And he's saying, listen, you've got to face it knowing that this is temporary. You've got to face it the same way Jesus faced it because you were set apart to reflect Him. He's going to develop all this out. This is all just the introduction. This is just the intro. He develops all this out. 
says, you were called to be Jesus. How did Jesus face it? Did Jesus face it like, ha, I could live another 30 or 40 more years here, Lord. I'm not going to that cross. Think of all the good I could do. <laughs> Isaac and I were just, quite frankly, having this conversation last night. We watched this movie, and um, this is real, guys. Uh, he watched this movie in um, which in the movie there was um, it was in a country where the rebels were overrunning an area there was a doctor and there was a priest and two nuns working in this area they were taking care of indigents and helping out and um, uh, there was a military team that was sent in to, ex- to evacuate them out and they took the doctor and um, priests and the nuns decided to stay behind. Knowing, because there were a whole group of them that couldn't, couldn't go. The doctor went with all those who were ambulatory enough to go, but they stayed behind with all the ones who were sick and couldn't make it. And uh, they knew the rebels would be in town the next day and that they were going to die. And he's, you know, he's looking at working in places of the world where these things could actually happen. And he's having this conversation with me saying, Dad, I need to decide now how I'm going to respond, not then. Mm-hmm. Like to have that conversation with your son? Yeah. It was a privilege. Mm-hmm. It was a privilege. I remember about a year or two ago, sitting in my, sitting in my bedroom, I remember the Lord saying to me right then and there, I want the life of your son. After I choked through, I don't want to. Okay. And, um, but, you know, he's not in, it's not, he's not there, it's not happening now. He's not in the middle of it. It was a very sobering conversation. And for him to be willing. You know, and there's a time to leave, there's a time to stay, right? James was martyred. The Holy Spirit told Peter to leave town. Okay? There's a time to leave, there's a time to stay. Doesn't mean it always happens that way. But it's, the decision isn't fear. And that's the point. The decision is learning how to be Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did. How many times they tried to kill him? He said, not happening now. This is not happening now. This is now's the time. I lay my life down. See, no one took his life. He laid it down. No one took it. Well, you can't do that if you don't understand that this world, if, if your hope is in this world and everything that's going to happen in this world and all that's going to go, if you are not looking at, with a faith that's looking towards the unseen rather than the seen, you can't face that. But of all your troubles and everything that bothers about what's going on in this world, then you look at things like this and you go, how can you do that? How can, how? And it causes panic. It causes fear. Y'all, y'all agree? Yeah. Um, so, we are being guarded by God's power. God's actually guarding us through faith. That, that's just an amazing statement there. Our faith is, 
you know, I, I, I kind of get, uh, I, I've wrestled with this verse. Which is going first? Is it God's power first or is it my faith first? All I can tell you is somehow there is this cooperation between the two. Now, I can look to Hebrews and say Jesus is both the author and the perfecter of my faith. So that very faith I had to begin with was something he put into me. Ephesians chapter, we all know, for by grace you were saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Which one? The grace or the faith? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we always think, well, he gave us grace so I could respond. Okay. Well, I would submit to you that there's something going on here, but there is a cooperation that's going on. We were were created to cooperate with God. We were created. Can you push that door? Yeah. We were created to cooperate with Him. That's how it was in the beginning. That's what it means to be an imager. Everything about our lives is meant to reflect Him. My goodness, how often I look at that and I go, Lord Jesus, help me. Help me. Help me. And that's why he's sitting on the throne of grace. (laughs) That's why we do this right here. This is why we stir one another up to love and good works. What's it mean to stir one another up to love and good works? It means to stir one another up to love and good works. It's so easy to get derailed. So easy. It's so easy to say, you know what? It's Wednesday night. You know, been a long day. You know, he'll be there next week. You know, so, you know. I can, you know, I can, you know, pop a little Bible uh, a project, watch 10 minutes, just get my God fixed for the night and watch the game. <coughs> How easy is that? How easy is that? <laughs> or you could DVR the game. Rain delay. Rain delay. Playoffs. Come on. In this you rejoice, though for though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that catch this, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may found may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So now we're developing out this, this faith thing. So listen, it is a privilege to go through trials. It is a privilege to go through trials because that is the opportunity for that thing which is keeping all that inheritance for you, for that thing that is keeping you connected to God, for that thing that is going to reveal glory and honor and power when Jesus Christ comes back, God's given you the opportunity by giving you trials in order to have treasure at his return. How are you going to see your trials? Are you going to start looking at them as an opportunity to allow Jesus juice to come out when you squeeze? Or are you still going to produce apple juice every time you squeeze an orange? Some people might not get that analogy. Okay, let me just put it this way. If I squeeze an orange... What kind of juice do you expect to come out? Orange Orange juice. If you tasted apple juice, I can automatically know my face. I'll go, what is this? Right? Okay, why? Why would we think it weird to taste apple juice coming out of an orange, and yet when we're squoozing and Jesus doesn't come out? (laughs) Squeeze, squoozing, whatever. (laughs) When we get squeezed. Because we're expecting the orange orange juice taste. Yeah. 
But if Jesus lives, yeah. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. We're expecting something. Yeah. Why is it something sour comes out instead of something sweet? I'm stealing that one. That's good. <laughs> I got that. Yeah. All right. So, um, and notice here he brings it again. So the re- faith revealed at the last time. Here we are in verse seven. Glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation, the revealing, the final revealing of Christ. Verse eight. Though you have see, not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There it is again, salvation in the future. Salvation in the future, the outcome of your faith. Let me keep reading. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them... Did you catch that, what Peter's saying? The prophets. When were the prophets? Were they before Jesus' time? Mm -hmm. Yet he's saying the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Messiah was in them, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. Wow, Peter's got these run-on sentences that are just packed with stuff going on there. Just a few things to pull out of it. Um, uh, Here's the prophets. As they're prophesying with their prophecy, it's like, Lord, I know there's something here that's more than what I'm writing, is that I'm prophesying. I know that there's something longing to see this, but knowing that they were giving this to a time that was future. Go back and read the prophets and look at how much they write about the future. There were tons about uh, the work of Messiah and what's going to happen and, and, and how it's going to be fulfilled, and how it's going to be revealed. They're longing to participate in this. Um, uh, and... and um, things which angels long to look at. We are going to be participating. You know, um, this is an identity thing. This is an identity thing. I'm just going to hit on this just briefly. Um, part of understanding our identity, Peter's telling us here, Paul talks about it, Jesus tells us this uh, through John. This is a piece of our identity. We'll probably finish up with this. When Jesus returns, we will literally be reigning this earth with him to the degree that we get it now. To the level that we understand and walk in it now. Jesus, it's like this. Jesus, come along. He doesn't mean a man. He doesn't mean a shield. He doesn't mean a man. He doesn't mean a man. He doesn't mean a He doesn't mean a It's the Holy Spirit. He's taken and deposited the Holy Spirit in every single one. We just preached the gospel about the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit is in you that was in Peter the Apostle. The same Holy Spirit's in you that was in Paul the Apostle. The same Holy Spirit's in you and in you, in you that was in John the Apostle. 
Same Holy Spirit. There's no difference. The same Holy Spirit. Jesus steals a parable. Everybody got a mina. There is a parable where it talks about talents. They have different levels. But there's also a parable that says we get the same thing. You get the same Holy Spirit. Same one. There's no difference to the Holy Spirit you have. He's like, what are you going to do with that? Which has been 